Yiridu Moranga. I'm Ray Johnston and welcome to your monthly Indigenous STEM special for Take It Black, where you can stay up to date with all the latest happenings in science, technology, engineering and maths. It's also a place where we look at the intersection of traditional knowledge and modern science and speak to people working in this space to find out what they're up to. First, here's some tech news. Take It Black. Keen to make some cash from your tweets? Well, now you can. Twitter has just launched a tip jar, a new way for people to send and receive tips on Twitter. You'll know an account's tip jar is enabled if you see a tip jar icon next to the follow button on their profile page. Tap the icon and you'll see a list of payment services or platforms that the account has enabled. Select whichever payment service or platform you prefer and you'll be taken off Twitter to the selected app where you can show your support in the amount you choose. The services you can add include Bandcamp, Cash App, Patreon, PayPal and Venmo. Twitter takes no cut of the tips and on Android, tips can also be sent within spaces. Twitter says a tip jar is an easy way to support the incredible voices that make up the conversation on the platform and that this is a first step in its work to create new ways for people to receive and show support on Twitter with money. Superhighways used by a population of up to 6.5 million Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders to navigate the continent tens of thousands of years ago have been revealed by new research using sophisticated modelling of past people and landscapes. The new insights into how people not only survived but thrived in harsh environments provide further evidence of the capacity and resilience of our ancestors and help paint a picture of large, well-organised groups navigating tough terrain. I spoke with Professor Corey Bradshaw, Professor of Global Ecology, about the research. So the, the research is actually split into two different um, articles, and we, we basically were asking the question about how people moved through Australia, but in this case, we're talking actually Sahul, which is what we've given the name to the bigger continent of New Guinea, Australia, mainland Australia, and Tasmania when they were all joined, uh, when the sea levels were much lower. In fact, for most of the period of human occupation of Australia, it was actually Sahul. It wasn't until about uh, eight, ten thousand years ago that, that the sea levels rose and cut off New Guinea from mainland Australia and Tasmania. So we were just looking at how people would have moved through this new landscape. Fantastic. And, and what have you found in looking how, at how people moved during this time? Well, the first one was looking at really sort of the pace of uh, settlement uh, by the by the ancestors of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, uh, as as well as sort of potentially how many uh, people the landscape could have supported. Whereas the second article was really looking at the sort of path, major pathways people likely chose based on uh, features of the landscape, for example, being able to see something on the horizon to orientate yourself by, as well as proximity to water sources and just the physiological capability of moving from one point to the next. So the first one, um, we actually started off with a lot of 
uh, data on landscape structure, human population dynamics, uh, migration patterns, dispersal uh, distances that people are able to make. And we basically came up with the prediction that from initial entry, it was it was plus possible that the the entire continent, and this is a huge continent, 11 million square kilometers, was settled within as little as 150 human generations, which you know was between sort of four and five thousand years, which is remarkable considering this rather harsh and very different environment uh, that people would have come into. Yeah, definitely. So. Some of this is knowledge that your know, Aboriginal people have, have always known. So how does your research complement that knowledge? Well, in a couple of ways. So the way I like to describe it is that we've kind of built the, the car <laughs> and we're, we now need to engage with different mobs about where to drive it. So a couple of things we want to be able to test. Now, this is, this is applied to, you know, 60,000 years plus ago. This is, this is not sort of just before Europeans arrived, for example. So we want to be able to take this modeling and push it farther towards the present and then start to, to in, speak to Aboriginal mobs about um, song lines, um, different origin stories, uh, some dreaming stories, as well as potentially linguistic uh, differences and similarities and, and even rock art and try to get an idea whether these pathways have persisted for that entire duration of human occupation, which would be remarkable and unprecedented. No in the world has that ever been recorded. And the, the strong, the, easy, the rapid initial uh, settlement and strong association and adaptability of different people, different nations around Australia likely means that, that these, uh, these song lines, these connections of co- to country and to other mobs countries persisted for, you know, <laughs> those uh, many, many thousands of years, which, again, just blows my mind. Yeah, absolutely. And have there been any communities or, or language groups that you've been working with up until this point? Well, we've we've started to to do that. Um, at, as I said, this this point we've just built the car, so that's the computer modeling and the and all the different data sets. But now we need to go sort of um, more in depth and fine scale. So we're starting to talk to a few people uh, like the Nurinjeri and various um, southern groups, but um, potentially some desert mobs and even even far north. So um, watch this space. But we we we're definitely starting that process now. And why is it important to have research like this? I think on a couple of levels. One, I mean, for the for the you know the white fellow population, I think there's a lack of appreciation really about what that means that deep time relationship with country and the fact that you know our modeling suggests that there could have been up to six and a half million people uh, sixty thousand years ago on the continent, and you know that has huge implications for uh, the the view that you know when. When Europeans arrived, that there was, you know, small disconnected bands of people. That doesn't seem to be borne out by the evidence, and I think that that gives white Australia uh, or non-Aboriginal Australia a chance to glimpse at the, in, the just the amazing ingenuity, adaptability, cleverness, really, <laughs> and of this deep, deep cultural association with land. And it just kind of makes me proud to be Australian, even though I'm not Indigenous myself. Having that sort of underlying everything that I see and do is is a, a source of pride. Well, thank you so much for your time today. It's been great to hear about your research and, and look forward to hearing what the next steps are now that the car's been built. Thanks. thanks. I'm, I'm keen to drive it all over Australia. <laughs> <laughs>
That was Professor Corey Bradshaw, Professor of Global Ecology. Research from James Cook University shows increasingly complex website password restrictions often leave us frustrated and lead to poor password security. Associate Professor Roberto Dillon investigated how we react to those increasingly complex password requirements and whether those rules compromise password security. Websites often require passwords that include a combination of special characters, numbers, upper and lowercase letters and more. And this makes passwords less likely to be compromised by hackers, but a lot harder for us to invent a password and remember it. This means 75% of us are using strategies to remember our passwords, including ones that compromise our security. The most popular strategy is using the same password for multiple sites. Now, while measures like password managers and two-factor authentication protocols, they give solutions to password management and securing privacy, Dr. Dillon said that they still suffer from usability issues and they're a bit of an inconvenience. He suggests a better approach is to ask us to make a long but meaningful password phrase, something that's easy to remember, but long enough to hinder brute force hacking attacks. At the same time, providers should be avoiding adding several restrictions, as it makes it more likely that we'll end up resorting to workarounds that compromise our security. Take it black. Next up is my special guest for this episode, Bradley Mogridge, a Camilleroy water scientist closing the gap between Western science and traditional science. He's my go-to when I need an expert to chat about anything involving our waterways. Our uh, name's Brad Mogridge. I'm currently an Associate Professor in Indigenous Water Science at the University of Canberra. My mob is Camilleroy Mob. And uh, born and bred in Western Sydney and now live in Canberra on Ngunnawal country. But, um, yeah, my country is up around... Boobra Lagoon is my water place. And, yeah, I'm up around Border Rivers country of between New South Wales and Queensland. And tell me a bit about the work that you're doing at the moment. What are you up to these days? Oh, how long you got? <laughs> as long as you need. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my, um, I just bought a book um, from a from an op shop and it says don't say yes when you want to say no <laughs> that's <advice>. my problem <laughs> I have a very bad no muscle oh, I, and, I can relate to that one <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah at the moment I'm trying to finish the PhD which should have been last year but got COVID affected because uh, I'm doing a PhD and looking at how traditional knowledge can influence water management um, ways of implementing knowledge into water management, um, I suppose, systems and, and, and processes and policy. And uh, I have one target area on my country in the Guada, um, Guada wetlands. So it's, it's looking at how, how can my mob be involved from the start of when water's planned for the wetland out there in, in the Guada? And how can they involve throughout the whole process? You know, how can their knowledge influence when and where water goes? Because at the moment, we don't have a say at all. 
I suppose that's my challenge is how to influence and change, shift the paradigm that our knowledge is credible. Yeah. You know, that our stories are real. They're not myth and legend. They are thousands of generations of observation of our country and it's been passed down and passed down. And, you know, when you look deeper into that, you know, our stories haven't really changed over the many thousands of generations, you know. So it's it's all about events that have happened or events that have happened through time and we keep telling those stories. And I think that the 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 challenge to try and change science itself but also policy, you know, you you might fill science with credible evidence, but then the policy's got to evolve and change with it. And then obviously science has got to change as well because it's um, it's something that we're left out of at the moment where we don't get engaged, we're not seen as experts. Um, and yeah, we can, we can talk about that a bit later, but yeah, I've, I've got some deadly examples of, sad examples, but you know, they're real examples. And this is a topic that you recently would have touched on on the climate crisis panel at the World Science Festival in Brisbane, yeah? Yeah, yeah, no, that was cool. I was on, invited to be on the panel, um, dobbed in by a mate, Jerry, <laughs> so shout out to Jerry, <laughs> Jerry Turpin. <laughs> um, but it was awesome to be on there because there was, I was with, um, I had a, a, there was an all Indigenous panel convened and, um, I was sitting on there with two deadly women that were just, you know, both had connections to the Torres Strait, but, yeah, talking about climate change impacts and obviously similar to similar to the water spaces that our knowledge and our adaptation hasn't influenced the way we, we look at climate change either. What was the reception from the audience up there? Did they approach you afterwards? No, it was a... Oh, unfortunately, it was a pre-recorded event. Ah, oh, yeah, of course. Ah, uh, yeah, and then, and then they played it um, a bit later um, as part of the International Science Festival. And, yeah, so I suppose you could only gauge it on the on social media, the topics, and when um, other panellists or, or the convener was putting it out there to, to you know, to promote discussion and, and, and interest, you know. But I just hope people listen to the message in, 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 that, um, in that session, yeah. Yeah, for sure. So when did your interest first spark in this area in, in water management? Is it something that's just always been with you? Yeah, it probably started about 65,000 years ago. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, it was um, science in general was an early age and then finished year 12 and had, going into year 11, you know, I said I probably shouldn't, do, shouldn't be doing science or maths. I wasn't up to it, and um, I thought, no, nah, bugger that, I'm going to have a crack anyway. And yeah, But good. I had to do, I had to do, we called it maths in the garden, which was, yeah, it wasn't, I don't think it was maths, it was just, I don't know. Yeah, I did, uh, um, I did maths in society, which I that thought was, was it. The, yeah. That was it. <laughs> <laughs> See, it's, uh, it's no indication of how uh, smart you can be at science in the future if you end up in maths in society class. That's it. And, yeah, and I ended up getting ducks of geology for school as well. Nice. Through the, through the HSC. And, and I, I don't think I even studied for that Maths and Society HSC. Um, I was away the night before, the couple of days before we had the exam. So it was just one of those ones where you just had to go through the process. And, you know, I got a decent mark. but And then in the end got into 
science at uni. But the problem was for me that first year uni maths is science maths, which is three or four unit maths equivalent. And, it's, and you just go, what language is this? I never yeah. learned this sitting in the garden. Yeah. <laughs> Pla- planning a theme park. <laughs> That's That's right. That was one of my assignments. <laughs> uh, yeah. And you just think, yeah, well, and then obviously, you know, I, I failed first year maths. I had no idea what I was looking at and then got a tutor and eventually eventually got through in, in sec, I think it was second semester in the end. But, you know, those sort of things that restrict us in high school, you know, they, they impact you later on. But then doing geology, um, I love learning about the earth. But then I suppose what geology does is dig big holes. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, I didn't really didn't really fit in my way of thinking and you know so I I changed to environmental science which was the right the right choice for me in the end and connected with that and then and then I went back later years because I knew water was a big issue and then as I'm dealing with water in environmental science and geology you look at all the issues of dewatering in mines and the amount of water used in the mining process and I thought water is a massive issue and then you seem to realize what Aboriginal people's connection is to water in the driest inhabited continent on Earth, I think that's pretty significant. And so I suppose that journey started around groundwater especially because, you know, it's the out of sight, out of mind. It's often forgotten about. But in Australia, you know, we have one of the largest aquifers sitting under our country, you know, the Great Artesian Basin in the Southern Hemisphere, I think, you know, and it's the biggest one in Australia. But... It's ancient water, and that really got me interested in the in the topic. And you know, I'm doing a master's in in hydrogeology. So, and and my thesis sort of led me down a path where I was looking at I wanted to look at salinity at that point, but I'd left local government in Sydney, and because urban salinity was starting to rear its head, and then I um, had a few years leave, and then. My supervisor, who was in my sister-in-law's pizza shop in Jeringong, saw one of my artworks um, in her pizza shop, and he said, oh, you're Aboriginal. I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he goes, why don't you do Aboriginal people in water or groundwater? And I said, oh, that's a good idea. But I <laughs> didn't think I could do You know, after doing subjects like hydrogeophysics, hydrogeochemistry, groundwater modelling, he just said, look, you just need to talk about groundwater and I'll market. And so, which was awesome. And yeah, and then I went on that journey to to look at our relationship with groundwater and there'd been no study per se at a national level. There's a lot of little regional ones here and a lot of those regional ones were in, in response to um, like development pressures or water planning pressures. And, you know, so that sort of popped up and you, you soon realise the connection our mob have to groundwater, you know, you're in a dry country, if there's no surface water, you've got to know where groundwater is or how you can access it for you to survive in this place. And I think that that sort of story really uh, excited me about what are, the, what, are, what are the opportunities here. And I think from that on, you know, the, the space has been... It's been slow um, because at the moment, you know, there's only... Well, say five years ago, I thought I was the only... Indigenous hydrogeologists, and then I found out that um, there was a young lass that did hydrogeology in Adelaide, 
and then there was a, a practicing hydrogeologist, a Murray fellow in in, that, in South Australia as well. So you know, then my network went from one to three. Yeah. <laughs> so that was cool. It makes a big difference, though, doesn't it, to have oh, people that understand your perspective and approach to the to the study and just to this part of science as well. Yeah, yeah, and I think, and then as as the passion grew for groundwater, you know, the, the opportunities to speak about it, I'm still part of selling the idea, you know, like 2019, we had the Australasian Groundwater Conference in Brisbane, and I've been a member of the International Association of Hydrogeologists for oh, 20, 20 odd years now, and I think, you know, this was the first time IAH Australia had the confidence in, in running an Indigenous session. And so, you know, we planned it, we, we wrote up the scope, um, I was going to chair it and, you know, it was lucky for me. I, I got to give a keynote in that session and then, then we had put it out for for uh, abstracts and we got a number of abstracts and one was from New Zealand actually because it was an Australasian conference and a Maori lad from Naitahu in the South Island come over to talk about the impacts of rising groundwater on their charcoal um, cave paintings that are in limestone caves because the water moves up and down um, quite frequently there. And, you know, that, that was really cool to have them have him talk about that. And then I had um, another talk from the Western Desert. And it was a, it was a young hydrogeologist, Steve, and he, had, um, he was working with... Um, oh, I've lost it. But, yeah, they're in the Great Sandy <laughs> Desert. He's been working with these women rangers about their springs and the significance of their springs in their country. And obviously there's a lot of th- potential threats out there from you know, contamination, but also extraction in that part of the world. And um, the women rangers turned up to Brisbane from from Western Australia. So I was able to organise them some tickets to attend the conference. They presented with Steve because he talked about the hydrogeological aspects of the springs and how they move and how they work and how they're connected. But they talked about it culturally on how how they know about these springs in this dry country and the, the indicators and and the challenges and what they're doing with with the science and so that you got the traditional knowledge merging with the western and they end up winning the best presentation for the whole conference it was like 500 presentations i think from memory wow so you've got to think you know that that sort of exposed indigenous knowledge as as a player in in the groundwater space and i think that was that was a sort of a turning point and we've got australasian groundwater conference this year in perth um, hopefully we can get there. Yeah, fingers um, crossed. It's, it's a bit later in the year, and we're going to have another Indigenous session, which is awesome. And, I, and I'm hoping, you know, we, we get good, we get solid presentations and abstracts from the mob. And, you know, I always want Aboriginal either co-presenters or lead presenters talking about their projects because, you know, the Western way has always taken our knowledge and got the benefit, whereas our mob rarely get the opportunity. And I think the co-benefit has to be there in, in these presentations. We don't want white fellas telling our stories. I'm tired of that. Yeah, it's really important. Yeah. Do you have any advice for any younger mob that want to get into what you're doing? Well, I um, I have a current PhD on offer at Uni Canberra. Um, you know, little things like that. These Our opportunities are limited, but also our, our opportunities aren't promoted. You know, our knowledge, our gains, our our people that are doing great stuff, we don't see that enough. 
Um, and I think, especially in the science space, if you're a practicing scientist um, and you're doing, in, you know, having impact in your in your area, you know, you should be promoted. Like, you know, little things like we don't have any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people as fellows of the Academy of Science. Wow. We don't have any Aboriginal Torres Strait Islanders as the Academy of Science, Technology and Engineering. So those two key science-based memberships for academies, you know, we don't have any delegates or fellows. And then we do have fellows in the Australian Academy of Social Science. You know, we've, we've got some real movers and shakers in that space. Obviously, people like Tom Calmer and Marcia Langton. So they're two big guns in that space. But in the science space, we get to crack that tough egg. And, you know, I think at the moment, the two academies are, are trying their best to try and um, change that. But I think what we also need is, is as a cohort is um, an Indigenous science network. We don't actually have one. So we've I've tried over the years and a couple of colleagues and peers have tried over the years as well to create one. At the moment, we've got a bit of momentum in this space, working with the, the two academies again. Um, I was able to work with the Academy of Science on their wrap and one of their outputs was provide the opportunity to create a, an Indigenous science network. And I suppose, you know, that that influence in that wrap has turned into an action and obviously we've got them, the other academy and also Science Technology Australia working with us to, to help. Um, but ov- obviously we need to take that space um, and I think there's a... Hopefully the next generation of Indigenous scientists will have a network that they can connect with, they can talk to, they can share, they can be mentored. Um, I think there's opportunities out there now, but, you know, if mob are interested in science and especially groundwater, you know, you need to look at the opportunities and, you know, there's scholarships out there, but, you know, you've got to try and stay connected to mob. And if groundwater is your thing on your country, you know, there's no better way is to, is to learn more about the science, but also then infuse that science with, with your knowledge. And I think that's, um, that's the exciting space where we're, we're moving into. You know, there's a, we, we saw it through the fires um, that Indigenous knowledge is starting to, to get a, um, you know, a leg up in this space because, you know, it was always perceived. And I think, you know, Bruce Pascoe's book and also the, the Greatest Estate on Earth um, book exposed our knowledge and our fire practices as, as legit, you know, they, they weren't just, we just didn't create, God didn't create these parks. It was our mob creating these, these open, open um, parklands for, for their own purposes and uses. You know, we were, we were using grain harvest. We were translocating species and obviously um, we were manipulating river flows to, to, to build fish traps. So all these things where we were, perceived as you know wandering aimlessly around the continent uh, are being debunked you know what i mean and and i think that the knowledge aspect is starting to get exposed as real you know not as well in a western term it's being validated through a process which you know sometimes i'm a bit uncomfortable with but i think my dream would be that traditional knowledge is on the same level as western science and because you know, and our, our knowledge holders are seen as experts in, the, in, their, in their content area. It just makes more sense, doesn't it, as well? Even yeah. from, a, from a pure Western science standpoint, to be open to all sources of information and to be able to change your methods and ways of looking at things based on that information, that's, that's kind of what science does, right? Yeah. Oh, look, and I suppose I've been 
pushing that boundary as well whenever I talk to a scientific crowd is that, you know, that our mob were testing, retesting, had methodologies, had, you know, had stories, had language linked to um, events, but also they had stories and methodologies around, you know, bush foods, bush medicines, um, hunting and, you know, like the, the astronomy aspect, you know, that, that's, that's going gangbusters at the moment around traditional knowledge of, of the stars, you know, that, that is being brought up as, as something that, that is real. Um, we just need, obviously, again, you know, the, the white fellas to step back and let, let our mob own, own their own knowledge, you know, and tell their stories their way. Um, and that's, that's, that's the hardest thing is that, you know, I think that's one of the reasons why I also got involved in this space is that I got tired of hearing non-Aboriginal people, non-Camilleroy telling our stories. You know, that, that, is, that has to stop. Um, there's been a, many, many researchers that, that have made careers out of Indigenous knowledge. They get the credit, we don't. And I think that that's the change and the shift. But also, we need to fill that space. We need to enter that space, own it, and it's ours, you know what I mean? So it's, um, it's us, I suppose, pushing our, our right to tell our stories our way, you know what I mean? So, yeah, I think there's, there's, there's good opportunities ahead, but... It's slow. Man, it's slow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, is yeah. there anything else that you'd like our listeners to know about the work that you're doing or, you know, even this Indigenous Science Network if they want to get involved and, and support it? Yeah, it, it's, it's early days. Um, we've, we had two roundtables um, with about, well, first time we had 35 and the next one I think we had 28. Indigenous people um, attend like because we were in COVID at that stage, so it was all on Zoom, and it was facilitated by a good friend um, Scott Gorringe, and we talked about what could a network look like, and I suppose it's our challenge will be now is what will that be? Obviously, I was I was quite um, what's the word? Uh, not prejudiced. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it is yeah, I was prejudiced towards the S in STEM, you know, the science. Yeah. Um, you know, I was pushing the, the S and because was, I'd love to start small and build bigger. But, you know, we had we had technologists, we had engineers and we had mathematicians online. We had artists as well. So, you know, and then we had medical medical people as well. So the, it went from S to STEM to STEAM to STEAM. And, and <laughs> so, but I think if we concentrate at the moment just on having it as a STEM, because, you know, there's no mathematician network out there. Um, technologists are on the move, as, you, as, you'd know, as you well know. Um, there's, there's some really cool um, activities in this space with VR and, and um, what's the other one? I, artificial intelligence. You know, they, those sort of spaces are growing. Um, Engineers Australia has an Indigenous Science, Indige, Indigenous Engineers Network. So, but I think if we can create our own, it's led by us, it's owned by us, and obviously then we can have a non-Indigenous advisory panel like we're always on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I think, you know, we need that support as well. We definitely need their support. You know, we, there's, there's, we can't do it alone. Um, and I think for us to have impact, you know, we're, we're, I think we're, we're on the right way. And I think the other thing is, is, is making sure that we have a voice at these tables, like, you know, the bushfires, we had the in independent expert panel, we had an Indigenous person sitting on that, um, and then we had Indigenous people attend, you know, and that Indigenous people give 
give their evidence at the Royal Commission. And but when when the fish kills happened, there was two independent scientific um, inquiries: one by the Academy of Science and one by the government, the Murray Darling Basin Authority produced. And so there was two science panels, and not one Indigenous person was on either of those panels. We got engaged um, as an advisor, um, and they took our knowledge, um, and you know they you know they wheeled out Uncle Badger when they're promoting these documents, which is, that's not on. You know, those, those people need to be seen as experts, um, not, not as an afterthought or, you know, to make them look good. And I think that's the same for climate change. Um, you know, as, as we move to hotter, drier, potentially increased temperatures, we're going to see our rivers drying up more. Um, we had millennium drought and we had a small rainfall event and then we went straight into another drought. You know, that, that is going to be the future. Um, well, it's happening now. You know, the, the Torres Strait are having their lands inundated, their cultural territory inundated by saltwater intrusion. You know, their freshwater systems are, are being impacted now. So it's, um, there's a lot of work to do. And um, I suppose some days I'm tired. And then I think, just imagine how tired the elders are. Yeah. So I get up off my ass and do it. <laughs> And we're glad that you do. Thanks, Brad. And thanks for chatting with me today. Really appreciate it. Catch you, Ray. See ya. That was Bradley Mogridge and this episode of Take It Black. If you enjoyed this episode, please let us know. Give us a rating, leave us a review, share it with your friends, subscribe. And if there's anything STEM related you'd like to know more about, hit me up on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook or LinkedIn at Ray Johnston and I'll give you all the info in the next STEM episode. Until then, don't forget to take it black. Always love, always love.